All right. We are back for another episode of the Natural Health 365 podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. And today I am with Dr. Lucas. We're going to be talking about cancer and mistletoe in particular. You're going to learn more about that in a very interesting way in just a moment. Dr. Lucas, thank you so much for being Thanks with for us. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Excited to join you on your, uh, on your podcast here and to talk about uh, what we're doing here at the Reardon Clinic, sort of my, uh, my journey as an as a integrative cancer physician. And uh, like you said, touch on mistletoe as, a, as a, a really powerful adjunct of therapy that I use a lot in my practice. Yeah, no doubt. Let's do that. I mean, it's very easy, I think, for the new person, Dr. Lucas. I know you understand this. For people to sort of like react and say, oh, mistletoe is going to be this magic bullet. And I know that's not where you come from. Why don't we start off first, first talking about your professional background, what you're doing at the Reardon Clinic, you know, that kind of thing. And how basically in general, that helicopter view, how you're talking to people who are concerned about, you know, going through a cancer diagnosis, you know? Sure, Jonathan, that sounds good. Uh, yeah, I think it's always great to let people know, uh, you know, what, where I come from, what my journey's been. Uh, I, I see my sort of uh, relationship with my patients as a, you know, as a very uh, equal sort of relationship. You know, my, my experience and my journey is just as important as theirs. Um, so I, I'm a naturopathic physician. I've been in practice about 11 years now. Uh, I um, uh, spent the first eight years of my career working at Cancer Treatment Centers of America, which is a pretty well-known sort of comprehensive cancer center here in, in, uh, in the U.S. There's five hospitals kind of spread out amongst the different regions. Um, so I did my, my, my residency, my training through them, spent about, like I said, eight years uh, in everything from patient care to research to, um, to you know, inpatient uh, support as well. So uh, that's really where I got most of my, uh, my clinical experiences through them, um, uh, which we can go into more. But uh, in the last couple of years, I've, I've been over here in Kansas City area. Uh, working at the world-renowned Reardon Clinic, uh, which some of your listeners may be aware of already, but they've been around for 30, 40 years. It was, uh, it was first started by Dr. Hugh Reardon, who was a big, uh, a big pioneer in the orthomolecular medicine movement. Uh, and he also did a lot of the um, original research with the NIH to establish sort of the safe use of IV vitamin C for cancer support. Um, so I, I had known about Reardon and I just kind of had a, a good timing with sort of my, my time at, at CTCA coming to an end and the opportunity uh, opened up here. And so I joined the Reardon Clinic uh, two years ago and have been able to um, learn even more uh, here about uh, ways to support cancer patients with integrative therapies. Of course, the vitamin C, which I already was, was using in my practice at CTCA, but just got my, my understanding just became accelerated by being in the environment that Reardon Clinic has here and all the research that we do with it and and really our global um, our global uh, um, we're, we're well known globally for IV vitamins here we've got partners in Korea partners in Japan partners in South America uh, that all are using the Reardon Clinic protocol for for vitamin C support for for cancer patients so. Um, that's sort of a little bit of background for me. Um, and um, as far as the different types of therapies that uh, 
um, that I use in my practice. Uh, we touched on mistletoe a little bit. We'll talk more about that specifically. But in addition to vitamin C, in addition to mistletoe, uh, of course, we, we focus a lot on nutrition with our patients. Uh, I focus a lot on lifestyle factors, um, things like sleep and stress reduction and exercise and all those other things that, um, you know, we know that, you know, all of those other things, even though they, they seem like smaller uh pieces of the puzzle all together really can make a huge difference. Uh, there were some studies that show that diet and lifestyle changes can make, make a, a, up to a 50% uh, difference in your risk of recurrence uh, with, with most common types of cancer. So uh, we try to you know, do a very comprehensive and well-rounded integrative uh, treatment plan for patients. I, I like to tell patients that I Quarter, sort of like their quarterback for all things integrative or natural health support while they're going through their journey. And it's not just about while they're going through treatment either. I see my relationship with my cancer patients as, as more long-term. Uh, you know, once we have the cancer out of the body, there's still work that needs to be done. Uh, we still need to address the underlying issues. We still need to address sort of the root causes if we can identify them of what caused the cancer in the first place. So that's where, that's where the long-term work is done. Um, but we're lucky that we have therapies like vitamin C and mistletoe that uh, have been well-researched, uh, have been around long enough that we, we've learned how to use them alongside conventional therapies. And we know that they, they can only, if used the right way, can only uh, provide enhancement and synergistic effects with those conventional treatments. Do a lot of the patients that go to the Reardon Clinic, are they doing conventional care as well? What's the percentage of those that are doing that versus, you know what, they're either done with conventional or perhaps a percentage that never did conventional therapies. They were just diagnosed and they just 100% go to a Reardon Clinic type place What's that percentage of the population look like for what you're seeing? Yeah, I was actually just uh, a new patient I met with this morning was kind of talking about that that same question. She had the same question for me. And uh, I, I, to my, the best guesstimation, I would say that kind of like there's, there's, there's three kind of categories and they're probably equally spread kind of a third, a third and a third. And each of those thirds would be the first one would be kind of patients that are going full bore with standard of care therapies. They're doing everything that their medical oncologist is asking them to do. They're, they're following the guidelines, but they also want to utilize us for, um, for more support, for side effect uh, uh, mitigation, and for that long-term healing. And then I would say there's a third that um, is doing some some pieces of the conventional approach, uh, whether that might just be surgery, but maybe they're deciding to forego chemotherapy or radiation. Um, uh, but they're doing, they're, they're doing some piece of that conventional component with maybe a little bit more aggressive uh, integrative therapies to try to, you know, uh, uh, bridge the gap a little bit better. And then we do, of course, have another third of patients that are sort of in that category of, you know, they're not doing any conventional therapies. They might be following with an oncologist for surveillance, but they're not, they're not taking any of the standard of care therapies. Or the other part of that third might be patients where there's really nothing left for them to do on the conventional side. They've kind of used up all of the so-called um, approved therapies or approved lines of therapy. 
and they're really, um, you know, they, they've kind of been um, uh, let go by their oncologist. I've uh, interviewed for a long time, Dr. Lucas, a lot of integrative healthcare providers, and I, I think back to one of the first integrative healthcare providers, or not, I shouldn't say first integrative, but one of the first really well-known docs who is talking to my natural health audience, Dr. Bernie Siegel. And I would imagine you're aware of his work and love medicine and miracles. He would say that no matter what it is you choose, if you have a strong conviction that this is the way to go, that your outcomes will be really good. So I preface, you know, I want to say that first before I ask you my next question, because I have a natural health bias. Um, God forbid I was ever diagnosed with cancer, to be honest with you, full transparency. I don't know exactly what I would do. I would probably lean towards all natural health therapies, throw the kitchen sink at it, if you will, that kind of a, an attitude or an approach I would take. But I want to ask you, just generally speaking, not to suggest that this is the way to go for any person listening, but by and large, what do you see as the most successful group of people? Maybe you would just feel more comfortable answering who you see are the most successful in overcoming a cancer diagnosis, you know, seeing it on the other end in a much better way. What does that patient look like, you know? Well, I think I would start with, with what you started, uh, you know, your, your last uh, a minute or two there off with is, is the power of the mind and the conviction and being 100% aligned with what you're doing. I would say that I see success amongst all of those different kind of three categories of patients with their approaches. But the common denominator is uh, my patients that beat the odds and really thrive through cancer, a cancer diagnosis, um, it's almost like they're, they already know they're going to be healed. They, it's just a matter of, you know, taking the steps that, that get lined out in front of them, but they already know the end result. It's, it's almost, it's, and you can see it sometimes in their eyes or just the way they talk and their body language. Um, and so I would say that that above all really, you know, the power of the mind is very powerful and, uh, it's, uh, it's something that you can't really, um, necessarily always instill or teach patients to have or do, unfortunately, uh, even though we try to cultivate that with, with some of our practices and referrals. But um, yeah, I think that, you know, the way you said it, 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 it rings home is that whatever you feel like is your conviction and what your path and what you want to do, at the end of the day, you know, it's your body, you know, we shouldn't be we shouldn't feel like um, because there is a so-called standard of care guidelines, um, you know, a lot of patients do that and don't have a good result. So to act like that's the only option for them, um, I think that that's, uh, that's not the way to go about it. And, and a lot of times, unfortunately, patients, when they get diagnosed, um, you know, they don't really take time to, to, to think about really what they want to do. Uh, and they kind of either their family members get them into seeing an oncologist soon or, uh, or, or they just feel like that's the right thing to do or their primary care doctor that they have a good relationship with says, you got to do this right away. And, and there's a pressure. And so I think, you know, I always love to see patients. That was my new patient this morning. She came to see me before she even met with the medical oncologist. She said, I value your opinion just as much, if not more than what they're going to tell me. 
And I want to get this side of the story before I hear what they're going to say. And uh, I think that that can, that can really help to change the way that they view this whole, um, well, really view their, their options because uh, when they go to a conventional oncologist, they, they won't get any of this sort of education or this material or this information about natural things they can do to support their body. Uh, it's really just focused on, I tell patients, you know, there's, there's the cancer, but then there's also the human being that has the cancer. And conventional oncology, mainstream medicine is all about just focusing on the cancer. And they do very little, actually, they do more to hurt the human being that has the cancer. And so that's where we, we primarily put our focus is, what can we do to support the human, to restore the natural defense mechanisms, the immune system, help the body clear out whatever toxins it's having issues with, uh, uh, reprogram the epigenetics around what's going on with the cancer, block metabolic pathways. There's so much that can be done on that side of things that unfortunately, you know, patients that are just going with standard of care are missing out on. Uh, you touched on so many things to unpack there. I know that half of our conversation is going to be really focused on mistletoe. That's what I'd love to do with you. But I think this part of the conversation is very important because like you already said, and I, I already uh, sort of began this, this kind of uh, line of our, our talk here is that it's whatever it is that you feel is best for you is very, very important. And a lot of what I hear from people, what they experience when they're diagnosed with cancer is a lot of fear-based tactics and like what you say, very focused on disease management and treatment and it's so much of these other things are left out. I think a lot of people feel disempowered. A lot of people feel a very low self-esteem, uh, right? Low confidence in what they can do, what they can accomplish when they're faced with a tremendously dangerous health crisis like cancer, heart disease, whatever it might be. And I think those things are definitely, they have to be dealt with because again, like you also mentioned, I, I knew another physician, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, who was a, a dear friend of mine. He's since passed away and his soul be uh, resting in peace right now. But he often would talk to me about how he could immediately, after 25 years in the cancer business, if you will, of talking to people about cancer, he would immediately sense when someone just didn't want to be there in front of him because of a family member's pressure, family dynamics in general, their own lack of confidence in what they were listening to from him. And he could really sense that, you know what, they either A, didn't want to live anymore, which God forbid anyone should feel that way, or B, really felt like conventional was the way to go. And you know what? He was the first one to look at that person and say, you know what? You don't belong here. You really need to go, you know, one way or another somewhere else because that's what was best for that individual, you yeah, know? Yeah, Dr. Gonzalez was certainly uh, a pioneer himself um, and um, uh, contributed a lot to uh, our understanding on, on other ways in which we can impact you know, uh, cancer and, and sort of root causes of cancer. Uh, his books are amazing. Uh, and we definitely lost him uh, way too early. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree with all those sentiments. Um, 
you uh, you have to be honest. You know, at the end of the day, um, if patients aren't a hundred percent into what you're asking them to do, your chances of having a success with that patient, you know, diminish quite a bit. And so, um, you know, I always try to do what I feel is best for my patients, even if that means sending them somewhere else. And how important, Dr. Lucas, how important is it to have, and again, it's not to put pressure on people listening, but I think it's really important to talk about because I see it as a major deal is how important is it to have support at least from one other person, you know, besides the doctor, right? You're there trying to teach and do your thing, but how important on a family or friend level is it important for that person with cancer to have somebody else that they can lean on for emotional, mental support? What do you think? Yeah, I, I would say that that certainly maximizes the potential for, for having a good outcome uh, when you do have, and usually, I mean, the more the better, you know, not just one person, but the more support I see around a patient, uh, the better overall they do. So, um, you know, oftentimes we do see patients, there's, there's schisms in the family dynamics. Um, possibly that's one of the root problems, you know, and, uh, you know, I do believe there's an emotional toxicity quality to some people's cancers. Uh, and that oftentimes does stem from uh, issues with families and dynamics there and relationships. So, um, it, it can, it can either help or hurt, uh, just as much one way or the other, um, having the right support or having people that maybe, um, are, are holding you back or are, real, are, are themselves an actual obstacle for your healing. Let's get into it a little bit then. Uh, it's a specialty of yours or something that you work with on a regular basis. Describe to our audience, you know, mistletoe, what's it all about kind of thing. And, uh, you know, in what cases is it really something that's good to incorporate for a cancer patient? Yeah, mistletoe is um, it's a it's a therapy that's been around for a long time, actually even longer than IV vitamin C, which dates back to Linus Pauling and, and actually even Frederick Klenner back in the 40s and 50s. But mistletoe goes back to the early 1900s um, and really starts with one one man, uh, Rudolf Steiner, who is uh, largely considered sort of the father of um, German uh, naturopathic and anthroposophic type medicine. And um, he, he discovered that uh, European mistletoe, which is actually much different than um, the mistletoe we find in North America, which we typically just know of as sort of that ceremonial plant we use around the holidays. Um, European mistletoe species have, have been used medicinally for, for many years, uh, probably close to 100 years now. Uh, and, and what we find that's unique about this plant, probably what tip Dr. Steiner off to why this might be a, a powerful medicinal plant is that it, it, um, it doesn't obey a lot of the natural laws of, of the plant kingdom. Uh, it, it blooms in winter. Uh, it's a semi-parasitic plant. Um, it, even the American version is. You see it in winter. It's kind of those orb-looking plants that grow on other trees. So it's actually... Um, uh, acting like a parasite off those other trees and, and getting its nutrients from, from the other trees. Um, and the root structure is very interesting as well. It actually has a, a, a centered root structure and it grows in a spherical nature as opposed to most grant, uh, plants that grow towards the sun. 
or orient themselves at least towards the sun. Mistletoe does not. Um, and it produces its fruit, its berries in the winter, which is again, opposite to most plants. So a uh, very interesting and unique plant. Um, but as far as the medicine that they get from it, um, there are a couple of different compounds. Uh, one, which is called lectins, which are, um, which are found in other plants and foods and, and, and can be, um, some people think can be a cause of some autoimmune conditions, interestingly enough. Uh, lectins uh, are found in mistletoe, and there's also something called viscotoxins. Uh, the scientific name for mistletoe is viscum album. And so viscotoxins, uh, this is what makes mistletoe, if you were to eat it orally, it makes it toxic. It can, it can actually make you quite sick. It's actually poisonous. Uh, but as you know, I'm, I'm sure, most of our best medicines come from toxic plants semi-poisonous plants. So uh, another key indicator there that, that, that of the medicinal uh, potential of, of mistletoe. Um, so anyway, Steiner and over the years, they developed a way of, of administering mistletoe, uh, particularly for cancer patients, but used in some other conditions as well. It's typically given by subcutaneous injection, um, uh, kind of like a diabetic gives themselves insulin. It's typically given several days throughout the week, two or three times. And at its real core of what it does in the body, it, it, it causes an immune modulation or actually even really an immune stimulation. Uh, and why is that important? Well, cancer only grows because the immune system lets it, okay? Uh, we all have cancer cells floating around our body. It's a matter of at the end of the day, does our immune system get rid of those cells or do they detect those cells and then get rid of them or, or trigger them to commit cell suicide? So this is always this is an ongoing thing It's in everybody's body. But when someone actually gets to the point where they have a full-blown tumor, that scale has been tipped where either they're making too many cancer cells for the immune system to keep up with or the immune system was suppressed long enough to allow that to happen or a combination of the two. And so the idea with the mistletoe injections is to, um, is to rebalance that scale in the favor of the immune system uh, so that we re-engage the body's ability to get rid of cancer cells on its own. So there's no real direct cytotoxic effects um, produced by the mistletoe, which is another reason why it's so safe to combine with chemo or, or other conventional treatments, um, but it, it, it essentially is repairing the underlying problem, uh, which is the immune suppression and the immune system's inability to get rid of enough cancer cells where, where that scale is not tipped in favor of a new tumor forming. Do we understand what actually activates the immune system? Is it just the lectins, just what you mentioned, or is there something yeah, else? Yeah, so, how, so how the, the, actual, the actual yeah. medicine that is injected is a, is a diluted uh, uh, extract, which contains the lectins, the viscotoxins, and there are some other um, compounds that are in there. It's not one isolated compound, um, but when that is injected into the body, um, it it's somewhat, it, it stirs things up. It, it stirs up a, a macrophage, uh, a, a, an induction of macrophages, an induction of natural killer cells, an induction of T cells. And by way of it reacting to the mistletoe, 
it also creates this parallel reaction towards certain cancer types. Do you give it to all cancer patients, or is it somehow, in a way, contraindicated? Yeah, there are a, a few limited um, contraindications. Um, of course, we always test patients for an allergic reaction to mistletoe. Uh, I've been doing this about eight years. I've never seen one, um, but we do always do a test dose before for that. Uh, and then um, anything else would be, uh, the, the main other contraindication would be uh, patients that have an active flare of an autoimmune condition. Um, and that would simply just be because you don't really want to ramp up the immune system when someone's in, a, in, in an active flare with something like Crohn's or colitis or MS. So when you're using mistletoe as a therapy, and, and just really quick, to be clear, the North American mistletoe is never used when we talk about mistletoe correct. therapy. It's for just cancer, European correct? Species. So when we're using that as part of a program, how is a cancer patient supposed to think of this as something that they may incorporate? Is it once a week, twice a week? Does it depend on the severity of the cancer? Is it all the time, even past when they don't have a detectable cancer? They t you know, that kind of thing. How often and how long is, this, is something like this expected to keep up as a therapy? Yeah, so um, typically with active cancer, when I'm first seeing patients, if they're you know, newly diagnosed or, or they're, they're going through treatment, we will start them on three times a week injections, typically Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, and so, um, and usually we'll keep them on that sort of uh, protocol for six months at least, or, or until we've, we've gotten towards the goal of either there's no evidence of disease or whatever markers we're watching for that patient are, you know, normal. Um, and then there are maintenance phases or maintenance protocols. And so um, the idea is that, you know, you want to get this sort of robust uh, stimulation of the immune system to help uh, with the active cancer that's there. But then long term, there's more of a uh, rhythmic dosing or pulse dosing that sort of just gives it that signal on a less frequent basis to stay oriented towards, uh, towards going after cancer cells. So for those people, Dr. Lucas, that are, uh, how should I say it in, in a nice way, they're more left brain oriented. What about studies? You have something that you could share with yeah, us? Yeah, of course, uh, mistletoe, you know, this is, um, this is, again, like I said, a therapy that's been around a long time. Most European countries, it's already an approved therapy um, and it's something that, you know, their insurance covers and, and all that. But over here, you know, in the U.S., uh, obviously the FDA is usually slow to adopt anything uh, that's more on the natural side. Uh, and so, uh, but in the last few years, we have seen a pretty large scale uh, phase one and two study opened at Johns Hopkins. And uh, actually what they're using in their study is an intravenous form. So not the typical injections, but an IV form of mistletoe, and um, they've uh, they've enrolled I think fifty or sixty patients. Uh, it's underway, and we're hoping in the next few years, or hopefully less than that, that we'll get some of the the final results, and that that will kind of just speed up the awareness, the acceptance, um, and just add to the evidence base that's already out there to support mistletoe use. Um, in the meantime, there's there's you know, 
we need more doctors doing it here, but there are some that like myself that um, have experience and still offer the therapy as sort of an off-label treatment. Uh, it's not illegal or anything. It's just that it's not, you know, technically FDA approved. So what about uh, telling people what they can expect? Is there a, a painful phase? Will people, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, when, when you say a stimulus, right, to a perhaps sluggish immune system, if we can put it that way, I would think that for certain people, there might be more fatigue during the day as far as the physiology kicking up more and having more biochemical reactions, if you will. Is that kind of something that you see that people might react by feeling a bit more tired? Not that that's negative, but I'm just curious, what are some of the things that people might expect, you know? Yeah, actually, you'd be surprised. Um, typically, you see the opposite um, with mistletoe. Um, you can see uh, low-grade fevers and some mild headaches, but typically in my practice, what I see is that patients um, very early on in the mistletoe therapy, once they've started the injections, that their energy improves, that their appetite, that their mood, that pretty much across the board, all measurements of quality of life seem to improve. Um, and so that's another great reason why to, to use it as an adjunctive to conventional treatments because those tend to be side effects of chemo and, and radiation and more conventional treatments. So uh, it, it, that's another indication, not only for the immune benefits, but for offsetting a lot of the side effects and toxicities of standard therapies. I think as we close out, Dr. Lucas, probably uh, one of the things that you just triggered off in me that I think is just a great final point for us to make, and I certainly just want to get your comments on it, is the idea that no matter what a cancer patient finds, right, you don't have to have a medical degree, you don't have to have a PhD, you don't have to have this huge experience or be this super bright person or some unique individual to realize that Anything that you're doing to help yourself with a health crisis, if you're feeling better in energy, your mental, emotional state is more upbeat, how important is that for the real practical sense that someone's going to continue to do not only what feels good, but perhaps even be able to add on because they're mentally, emotionally, and physically doing so well, hey, maybe I can walk now. Hey, maybe I can now make that soup for myself at home that I've always wanted to make. You know, the list goes on and on. How important is it is that compared to perhaps what so many people lose sight of if they just do conventional therapies or anything for that matter that's dragging them down physically, which will then automatically really crush them mentally and emotionally as well. And then that sets the stage that they perhaps do more destructive things as they go along. So it's a real delicate balance, right? A dance that has to, you have to be mindful of, I'm sure, when you're coaching people, right? Yeah, and this is, you know, goes back to what I said earlier about, you know, th there's nothing being done to help support the human being that has the cancer. And um, that's where I think a lot of our therapies really shine. And um, you know, if we're, if we're able to do more things that create health in people, even if they have a sickness or an illness or a disease, if we create more health 
through therapies and through diet and lifestyle and, and mental, emotional work, whatever, if we create more health, there's less space for disease to grow and thrive. And so that's that constant balance where we're always trying to tip that scale in favor of creating more health, which you could say you know, things like mistletoe and vitamin C, while they have some effects towards fighting cancer, they also have this parallel effect where they create more health in the body and, and restore the natural sort of healthy mechanisms and rhythms that the body needs to sort of find its way back to health. And so it's, to me, it makes complete sense. And I hope for your listeners uh, that that resonates as well. Um, but, you know, it, it's unfortunately in, in conventional medicine, it's so one-sided with just focusing on the disease itself. So we really need to, we need to rebalance that and get patients and, and doctors thinking more about the other side of the coin, which is supporting, you know, the human being and the rest of the body that needs to create health as well. Well, I think you just nailed it right at the end for people to take away from here is this whole attitude needs to change. I think more and more people on a conscious and subconscious level, the reason why they're so frustrated with conventional care is they just something's missing, right? To the uneducated person out there who's just frustrated, I think on a some sort of level, they do know that we're not trying to figure out how to make the terrain, the inner terrain, healthier, how to make the human body healthier. Instead, like you say, just treat, kill the cancer cell, kill, kill, kill. And meanwhile, it's killing healthy cells, chemo, radiation, causing all these negative you know, collateral damage, massive negative effects. And people are like, what's going on here? Isn't there something else that we need to do? And everything that we're speaking about today, I think, is just about supplying the body with things that make us happier. And if we're happier and healthier and on a cellular level, we're more energetic and we've reduced our toxic burden, which we talk about all the time, Dr. Lucas, with all of my programs. I mean, why is that still such a radical concept in 2020? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I know this video will probably live on a while. Maybe we won't be talking about the pandemic anymore, but I think you can find a lot of parallels with what's going on with the, the viral pandemic we're dealing with right now currently. And, and that same mindset. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, my focus is cancer, but uh, I, you know, I think that this approach really, you know, should apply and, and these changes that we're talking about you and I today, they need to be applied broadly and across the board with, with our whole healthcare system. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're due for a paradigm shift. And I, I don't know why these things seem so radical, like you said, but um, to me, it makes complete sense. And I think for most patients inherently, you know, I always, you know, I do, I kind of interview my patients a little bit to get a feel for, for kind of where they're coming from, their values, their, you know, their mindset. And uh, I think through that, overwhelming majority of my patients deep down know that all of this stuff makes sense and that, and that, um, and that we're missing, you know, at least half of the battle by, by not doing more of this natural support uh, to, to, to try to get the best of both worlds. I mean, I'm not completely against conventional medicine. I hope it does not coming off that way. I just feel like there's so much more we can do to set ourselves up for success. 
and, um, and to decrease the amount of toxicity that the conventional treatments bring along with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I hope that, like I said, with this whole pandemic, that, that that might be one of the silver linings that comes out of that. I couldn't agree with you more. I think this pandemic is clearly putting a bright light on the idea that your immune system has really got to get better. And I think that legitimately, I say it that way, a lot of people are running around so scared about a virus because, again, on a conscious and subconscious level, a lot of people, I think, feel like they are dancing on thin ice, meaning on a health level. And so this virus is like, oh, my God, one more thing. If I get this, it's going to really throw me over the edge. And people who are overweight and they're on medications and they're diabetic, they've got blood sugar problems, they have hypertension, they're taking drugs already for all kinds of problems, they feel like they're living on the edge, and now this virus comes, they really feel like it's going to kill them. And so I think that this is a really necessary part of hopefully, like you say, I agree with you, hopefully people are waking up more and more that we've just got to get involved in improving our own personal health, which is the ultimate defense against all of these, you know, major chronic illnesses that we experience today. Yeah, well said. It's, um, you know, I, I'm sure most people have seen the statistic about, you know, 80, 85 percent of, of chronic illnesses is related to diet and lifestyle. And so, you know, all those things you you rattled off there, hypertension, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, yep. obesity, it's all it's all about um, taking accountability for your habits and what you're doing to either promote health or disease in your body. And, um, you know, doctors, doctors don't heal people, you know, people heal themselves. I, I truly believe that. And so um, this this ultra reliance on, on doctors and, and the government and hospital systems to, to take care of us. We, we got to get rid of that mindset and, and learn how to um, take care of ourselves. Without a doubt, it's not sustainable. Dr. Lucas, for those who want more information about you, the Reardon Clinic, yeah, our, our website's a real just wealth of, of lots of information, uh, www.reardonclinic.org. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel. Just search Reardon Clinic on YouTube. Tons of uh, past presentations, podcasts, stuff like that on there. Uh, we're on social media, uh, both under Reardon Clinic, uh, on Facebook, you know, all the normal social media sites. And then I, I post a lot on Instagram under the a handle at Dr. Lucas, uh, doctor spelled out. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're out there if you want to look for us. Um, and uh, we've got three clinics across the state of Kansas, our flagship clinic in Wichita. Uh, I'm here at the Overland Park or Kansas City office. And then we have another clinic out in Hayes, Kansas, which is out in the, the western part of the state. But um, yeah, we're, we're here to help. We, we pretty much are willing to take on any sort of complex chronic disease cases. I see mostly cancer, but we have providers that specialize in other illnesses as well. And uh, we're here to you know, try to help people create that, that real health for themselves. 
Well done today, Dr. Lucas. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much Thank for being you. with us. Thank you.